This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So the message you're about to hear was originally delivered nine years ago. It's sort of one of those Ellerslie classics. And at the time, it was very pertinent. And it's amazing that nine years can pass. And here we are. uh, And we need a message like this afresh. You see, we have a vulnerability in this culture. I love America. I really do. And yet, we are building a version of Christianity that is self-entitled instead of self-relinquishing. And so it is critical that we get down to the brass tacks again. We get back to the word of God and we allow God to build us according to his pattern. If we're going to change this earth and and turn this world on its head again, we need to do it God's way. Father, please don't let us get comfortable in this earth. Please invade our thinking, our living, our spending, our sleeping, our eating. Lord Jesus, you must permeate our existence. We mustn't keep you outside of it. We say, come Lord Jesus, come. May our bodies exhibit that which you purchased on the cross and every bit of it. Please Lord Jesus, we just yield ourselves afresh to you and we say, come. Come and reveal yourself in and through your church. Do whatever you must do this morning. Convict us. Lead us by your spirit. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This was a challenging message to name. Again, I get caught on things like names. I think about it way too much probably. But no matter what name I thought of, it was negative sounding. Uh, For instance, the belly god. That doesn't sound very attractive, does it? So you're going to say, I'm getting out of here right now if that's what this message is about. Don't you just think of his big, you know, uh, large character just with rolls of fat? You know, it's just like disgusting. Who wants to listen to a message entitled that? Uh, How about this one? Gluttony is absolutely disgusting. (laughs) It has a negative tone to it. Uh, And... What I ended up choosing, well, what my placeholder was before I just changed it, because I just, I had something all the way up to this morning. It was mine with an exclamation mark. Mine. The little kid mantra. It's mine. And it's not just a little kid mantra. We as adults just hide it better. And so here's the title that we ended up with. Americanized. <laughs> there is something that is that we adopt here in this country without knowing it. It is under the radar. And what it does is it has a tendency to make our appetite our God. Under the banner of Christianity, I know that sounds impossible because isn't that the antithesis of Christianity? It wasn't Jesus our God? Well, yes. However, we disprove that fact in the way we live most of the time. 
And oftentimes, conviction has a difficult time reaching us because the church doesn't know how to address some of these issues. It was funny, last week I made a statement and I said, there are things in the church that are not being rooted out because, I mean, no one even talks about them. Well, I haven't talked about them either. So it's not like it was an indictment on other people, it's an indictment even on me. It's like, well, who thinks about these things? Gluttony. And I actually mentioned that last week. So this is almost like a part two of last week. So if you had trouble making it through last week, I don't know if this week's going to be much easier. Last week we dealt with, the, the name of the message was When a Pastor Lives a Double Life. And we were dealing with hypocrisy. And that message hurt. That was in the most precious way, though. I love messages that hurt. I do. This message Boy, did I wrestle with this one this week. I could just sense that searchlight on my soul, which is the way it must be. And so God was turning over every stone in me. And they were just little subtle motives or thought patterns that he kept poking at, which were very healthy for me to go through. But I tell you what, it was a wiggling sort of week. Last week I had in my notes this concept of the all-permeating light. And I'm not sure, I don't remember where it came from. I think we were talking with Hudson about heaven. He was asking some questions about heaven, and we were staying up late one night. Leslie, Hudson, and I were staying up, and we were discussing heaven. And so I was opening up Revelation, and I was reading something. Let me see if I have the scripture here. Yeah, here it is. There shall be no night there. This is speaking of the new Jerusalem. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's a beautiful scripture. Most of us take it as poetry. But I want you to realize, remember what the title of this section was? The all-permeating light. No need of sun or lamp. It doesn't just say sun, it says lamp. Now imagine you're in your dwelling in heaven and you open up a closet. You don't need a lamp. That means this light permeates all shadow. There is no shadow. It permeates every corner. Are we desiring heaven to come to earth? That's what we pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Gulp. Do we really desire an all-permeating light to begin to search us? No need for lamp, no need for sun. We have the Holy Spirit, who is the light within our souls. Which means as we go through this message, I want you to open up every drawer, And you'll notice that the Spirit of God will shine light in it. Without any need of any other outside help, if you desire it, the Spirit of God is ready to show you every crevice of your life, to turn over every stone, everywhere there could be darkness found, the Spirit of God is ready to come in and shine his light. Lucifer. You know what his name means? By the way, if you don't know who Lucifer is, in our house we'd call him the Big Meanie. Okay, He's also known as Satan. The devil, Beelzebub, the serpent. There's various names for him throughout the Bible. His name before he sort of went bad, and I'm guessing it still could be his name now. I have no idea. I've never been in discussion with any of the demons of what they call him. But it was Lucifer. Lucifer was his name, which ironically means bringer of light. You see, what we oftentimes do is, instead of going to the light of God, which hurts, it literally convicts, and it doesn't allow any shadow to remain. We consult with a false light. 
but still sounds like wisdom. It still has an air of heavenly sound and ring and timbre in it. But it's a false light. And it will not drive out darkness. It will actually maintain and rationalize the presence of it. But this is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination. Speaking of the light that Lucifer brings. This is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination. Why would Lucifer provide any light whatsoever? Why doesn't, if darkness is ruling the earth, why doesn't he just hide out in a corner and watch? You see, he knows that there is a battle over every soul. And so his agenda is to bring a false light to that soul and to dupe that soul. What is his message? And that is to question the words of God. Did God really say? It is illumination of an insidious nature. You know that the serpent comes and he literally provides a light to Eve. He did. He gave her information that she didn't know before. However, what is his agenda? To cause Eve to turn in rebellion against God and to question the word of God, to question the integrity of God, the intent and motive of God. He's very good at it. This is speaking of Lucifer. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now, one thing we can know about Lucifer is he has a corrupted wisdom. In other words, it sounds like wisdom. When the enemy comes to you and baits you with some of the things we're about to discuss, it sounds like wisdom. But it's a corrupted wisdom, why? For the sake of your splendor. Well, the sake of Lucifer's splendor, how about you? Why would you fall for it? Why did Eve fall for it in the garden? For the sake of her splendor. You can be as God. Now, I know that that sounds absolutely heretical in light of what we, you know, who we are, just in the open air, just floating around. You can be as God. Who would ever fall for that? We do. But we don't do it, we don't fall for it in the obvious sense where we sit down in a church and we're going to say, I'm going to just change all doctrine today and say, hey, guys, did you know that we could throw out this Christianity thing and we could worship ourselves? That's not going to go over here. So how does the enemy dupe us? How does he get strong Christians like us to believe such a notion, to buy twisted wisdom? How would he do it? Here's a key word for us today. We'll call it rationalization. You know, I've heard the word justification. It's similar. Rationalization involves the working of the intellect to literally skip over things that would otherwise be known to creatively dodge them and go around them. You rationalize why you are not doing something that you know you ought to do. Well, sure, I know I should do that, but you should hear my rationalization. I have good reasons for why I'm not doing it. You see, you could not live with yourself if you didn't rationalize. You have to rationalize why you are living the way you're living. You see, many of you even know that there might be pockets of your life that are incorrect biblically, but there's reasons for it. Remember last week we were talking about duplicity, living the double life, why we speed down the road. Well, we have reasons for it. And I... They're, they're pretty pathetic reasons, you have to admit. Well, I need to get there quickly. Well, I want to show them honor. This is my classic one. I want to be on time, and if I'm on time, I'm going to show the nature and character of Christ by 
not showing the nature and character of Christ in violating the law that has been given to me and clearly articulated to me on the side of the road. Stupid speed limit signs. You see, we have our reasons. It's called a rationalization. And we can soothe our conscience with a rationalization. So what I want you to be very aware of as we go through this message is rationalizations. I do not want you to provide yourself any shelter from the clear light of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to close any drawer and say, well, I'm just going to hide that in that drawer because light can't get in there. I want you to open up every drawer, open up every closet, pull the bed sheets back. I don't care what you need to do. Throw the mattress off and get underneath that bed. Move the couch out of the way. Tip it over. If you're hiding anything in there for the sake of the glory of the king, let's allow him to search us. So rationalization, ignoring the true light, and it's accompanying conviction. Many of us know what that's like. There's a true light that comes, and ugh, we're not really big fans of it at a certain level. I, I mean, I really do love the true light. But there are moments when I'm not too happy that it's shining. Okay, it usually is when someone else around you that's, you know, a little holier than thou makes a statement like, well, I would never do that. And then you're like, Pfft. There's an immediate rationalization. First of all, you look at them and go, I, I don't want to be like you. I don't want to have that snooty, self-righteous attitude, which is why I participate in something I know I shouldn't do. I mean, what? Well, how could you ever come to that conclusion? We do. Okay, ignoring the true light and its accompanying conviction by turning on a lamp of false life, light and thusly soothing the irritated conscience, craftily employing the corrupted wisdom for the sake of our comforts. The anatomy of rationalization. So let's just break it down real quick. Number one, the bait. The enemy has a bait. Whether it's a piece of fruit, whether it's that one-liner that he gives, he's, he's working with something. If he didn't have bait, then we wouldn't fall for this in the first place. There has to be bait. It's the opportunity for self's advancement, comfort, or aggrandizement. In other words, there's some gain that you can get. The old thing when you're filling out your tax form, and you could fudge the numbers a little. Well, that's the bait. Why would any of us do it? We're Christians. We live honestly. We do not live duplicitously. We live the same way before all of you as I would before the IRS, as I would before my God. I have nothing to hide, right? What's the bait? Why would we do what we do? Well, there's an opportunity. Now the problem, a slight hiccup on the old convictometer sort of shows up. If you sort of fudge the numbers, guess what you feel? Something's not right about this. And so you have a little hiccup on the old convictometer. It's like, doo doo, and you're like, oh great, conviction. You see, conviction messes things up. We could really take care of ourselves well if we didn't have conviction. To do this would mean to do something that is either questionable or outright, outright wrong. And you know that, which is why you need a rationalization. So the justification comes in. By applying false light and corrupted wisdom, the sting of conscience can be quelled. Well, that worked well. Yeah. It's like this funny salve that deadens the pain of the conscience. Some strange ointment that can be applied to your soul and it just sort of deadens and numbs that which was screaming. Huh. It's called a rationalization. Illustration number one. The questionable movie. No one 
No one told me that there was anything bad in this movie, as you're watching it. Have you ever realized how pathetic that statement is? No one told you. If someone else is responsible for what you watch, and they should have forewarned you. Now, I have had that where someone recommends a movie. I have to be extremely watchful now. This is back in the days when you almost wanted to have someone not tell you something was in the movie. Because now, if you know that something's bad about the movie, then you have a tough time rationalizing. But if someone doesn't tell you, that's why you go to the, the wrong people to get your movie uh, suggestions. It's like, and so how about you? What do you think I should be watching? Oh, I think you should watch this. You're like, I think you're very smart. Don't tell me anything bad about it. You see, we want to be able to enjoy the, and rationalize the questionable movie, and so we come up with reasons. You know, I didn't, I didn't ask them to stick that in the movie. What kind of thought pattern is that? You ever, have any of you ever thought of actually getting up and walking out if you were in a movie that you shouldn't be watching? It's like, oh, yeah, you can't do that because that would be rude. We have our reasons why we sit there and participate in junk. And I say, no rationalization should be able to salve the Christian conscience. You do not allow any shelter, any re any retreats from the bright, hot light of conviction that God is bringing upon your soul. If he's bringing conviction, receive it. Respond to it. Don't rationalize. Illustration number two, the dubious tax maneuver. Well, the IRS is just a bunch of crooks. They don't need any more money. Obama's just going to give it away. Well, yeah, there's reasons why we actually have our thinking processes. However, as Christians, we are responsible to give unto Caesar that which is due unto Caesar. And if Caesar is even giving an unjust tax, there's no allowance in Scripture to lie. The point is, no dubious tax maneuvers, no shelter for your conscience. I want you to be honest I must be honest before the realities of my God and if the IRS comes in and examines my life, they see the same life behind closed doors in my house as they see on paper in the IRS office. There's no distinction. Illustration number three, the premarital indulgence. Well, we're going to be married anyways. There's always a rationalization for why. We behave the way we do. And I want you to allow God to inspect your life and to challenge every turn of your soul. I do not want any of us to get out of this unscathed. Shining light into the shadowy soul, bringing the light of heaven to this earth. The sin of self-entitlement. The concept of self-entitlement is one of the things I want to build on in this message. When we talk about Americanized, what's the concept of Americanized mean? It means we have rights. What do you think the entire Declaration of Independence is? The Bill of Rights is. The Constitution of the United States is one that secures the rights of the individual, the rights of the locality, the rights of the local community, the rights of a state, and the rights of a nation. We have, as a baseline understanding in our governmental structure, inerrant rights that must be maintained and protected by law. Okay, that's, that's the nation we live in. And so what do we as Christians say? I have rights. We do. 
What does Christianity say? What does the Bible say? Lay down your rights. What? These are my rights. I'm not saying governmentally you don't have rights. I'm saying in the kingdom of heaven, you lay down your rights as a first fruits offering before the rightful king of your soul. I no longer am my own. I am bought with a price. I relinquish all rights. Mm -hmm. That doesn't go over very well in this country, does it? No, we don't like that, which is why we have elaborate rationalizations. And we could say to God, hey God, have you ever read the Bill of Rights? You can't take that right from me. That's what we'll say. We have these funny things that we will do to secure our rights in this life. The sin of self-entitlement. You'll notice these are concepts that are built into the framework of the United States thinking. Not just Christian, all of us. It's based on psychology. And that is the importance of self. Self is the primary element in your life, and you must coddle it and take care of it and preserve it and protect its right and its position in your life. Okay? I don't know how many of you have grown up hearing these things, but look at the first word. Self-esteem. Self-esteem is just it's just good because if you don't have self-esteem, you're going to think poorly of yourself. Now, the opposite of self-esteem isn't, you know, the goal is not that you feel bad about yourself. That's not what Christianity is about. However, Christianity is not about self-esteem. It's about self-denial. Not self-esteem. We don't esteem self. We deny self. What do, who do we esteem? Christ. Christianity is Christ-esteem. When you esteem Christ, you understand that he has placed value on you. You have that. You have that knowledge. You have that understanding as a Christian that you are valuable to God. But you in and of yourself is not who you esteem. You don't look to yourself and say, wow, look at how good I am. Look how able I am to live this out. You stink. You can't live it. The fact that God has condescended to wash your feet is bewildering. And I include myself in that list of we. Why would he come and serve us? Why would he come and shed his precious blood for us? It's hard to explain, but it's a massive condescension. Christianity is Christ-esteem, not self-esteem. Self-worth. This is about Christ's worth, his glory. You know that the concept of worth is the same concept of glory. It's weight. It's like the weight of a bag of coins. The bigger the, the glory, the heavier the amount, the, the value, the worth of God. It's not our worth. It's his worth. We are caught up into the realities of his worth, not our own. Self-importance. Christ-importance. Christianity is the exact opposite of this list. And yet this list is what we're trained at in public schools and Christian schools. You need to have a good, healthy self-esteem. It's like if you were to look at the purpose statement of, of the public school system, it would be to build a self-esteem into the students. That would be its entire goal. What do I desire as a parent? I don't want my child to be woe as me and staring at his, you know, his toes all day long saying, I, yeah, I'm worthless. I might as well just leave the earth. You know, I'm, I'm, I have no value. That's not what I'm after. I want them to be turned upward, focused on Jesus Christ, to esteem Christ. That's the great aim of parenting. And as a result, I would say it should be the aim of all education. 
that all eyes would be focused on Jesus Christ. So, self-importance. Oh, I'm sorry, self-entitlement, a.k.a. gluttony. I know this isn't how many of you think of gluttony. Gluttony would be typically understood as overeating. And as a result, most of us don't feel a lot of pang of conviction over that. However, it still means that, okay? In other words, mishandling appetite is part of what gluttony is. But I would like to go to the root of what gluttony is. And that is the concept of self-entitlement. I deserve this. It's my right. I can serve my appetite any way I please. Okay, that's the root problem with gluttony. So gluttony is self-entitlement, self-pampering, adoring attention paid to self's tastes, needs, and wants. Now, if you understand Christianity, you're going to see an enormous contrast here. Okay, first of all, self-entitlement, self-pampering, adoring attention. It's like worship. Attention paid to self's tastes, needs, and wants. What do you feel like today, self? What are your tastes? What are your wants? What are you longing for? Mm, We want to get that for you. You see, in and of itself, that doesn't sound like gluttony, does it? But that's the root of gluttony. You see, you may eat a sparse amount of something, however you deserved it, and that's gluttony. You literally will say to the, to the nixing out of all other voice and all other light in your life, I don't care what God has to say about this. I deserve it. And if I want a bagel, by golly, I'm getting a bagel. Okay, and you can say, it's a bagel. It's not not even that bad for you. That's not gluttony. No, it's the attitude behind it that God is measuring. You're not allowing light into that. And that's the issue. It's not how many bagels you eat. It's the one bagel eaten out of self-entitlement that is your sin. Okay, my sin too. I'm not just talking to you guys. I've been dealing with this all week. It's like now I just turn it out towards you guys and, you know, whip you. Turning down the bed sheets for the self-king of the body. Attentive service under the ring of every demanding bell from the self-master of the estate. You know what the butler does to the estate? It's like, you know that, that wealthy land baron who sits, you know, drinking his uh, special teas and sitting, being fanned on the front porch, and he rings his bell. I always picture the woman doing the ring. Ding, ding. Uh, Jeeves, please, could you turn down my bed sheets? Okay, so Jeeves will do anything that this wealthy lady asks, and she'll turn, he'll turn down the bed sheets, and she'll ring again, and he'll have to, she'll have to get, him some, get her some special uh, food. But this is literally what is taking place in our soul. It is a self-entitlement. This is our estate, and we can do with it whatever we want. And so if we have strength, if we have energy, if we have appetite, what do we do? We ring our bell, and we say, I deserve this. This is what I expect. This is what will make me happy. And we could do it under Christianity. That's what I'm saying. Because if conviction doesn't get in underneath it and we shine a light in this closed drawer of our life, we'll continue to live with a little bell in our hand. The glutton. It's not an ugly word. Glutton. This is what it means. A glutton is a belly. It's actually what it would be. A belly. So, you're a glutton, that, that means someone's calling you a belly. Remember how, what the name of this message was almost? The belly God? Okay. A belly, a prodigal. It's one who wastes that which they've been entrusted. It's actually the concept of a glutton. 
It's wasting that which you've been entrusted. So the prodigal son would have been the gluttonous son. That's the concept, okay? It's an absolute waste of what's entrusted. One who wastes their body on self-appetite. It doesn't matter what God wants to be done with this body. You're going to waste your life on your own appetites, dreams, and desires. That's called a glutton. A gormandizer. I almost named this message the gormandizer, just to, and then like went to the next slide and said, not really. The gormandizer. This is what it means. A man who, as it were, who, a man who is, as it were, all stomach. So it's a guy who's just all stomach. Uh, you know, have you ever seen someone with a really big head? They're sort of like, they're all head. You know, this is like someone who's just all stomach. When you see him, all you see is a big stomach. It's a gormandizer. That's a glutton. It's someone who is all about their stomach. It's what defines them. Okay? Oh, no. Oh, no. Eric the glutton? This is getting bad. See, you thought I was just mad at you guys and getting you all, you know, turning over every stone and opening every drawer in your life. Well, guess what's been going on for me all week? Eric the glutton. Now, I am the classic non-glutton by looks. Okay? No one would ever accuse me of being a glutton. All right? Why? Because you assume a glutton is going to be heavy. Eric can't gain weight if his life depended on it. Okay? And that's where my problem has stemmed from from the beginning is because I want to weigh more, or I should say I always did want to weigh more. I finally am perfectly content with my weight. Okay? And I'm starting to see the benefit of it. I had those people that would say, no, Eric, when you're in your 40s and 50s, you'll start to appreciate the fact that you can't gain weight. Okay, that's fine. You know, I, I guess I do. But the point is, when I was growing up, let, let me go through a little story here. The garbage pale dad, walking in the shadow of the legend. My dad's nickname in college was the garbage pail. Everyone that couldn't finish up their food at the, at the dinner table at the cafeteria, he would eat their food. My dad literally could not get enough. And he would eat, and he would eat, and he would eat. He was a football player. At least he could justify that he played football. I played soccer. You're not, you, know, you don't eat a lot when you play soccer, do you? And so my dad could at least say, yeah, I need to bulk up. I'm a lineman. You know? But my dad looks just like me. He's built just like me. I still wonder about Whitworth College's football team if my dad was a lineman. Okay? But back to the point here. My dad was the legend, and I grew up on the stories of my dad being called the garbage pail. And guess who wanted to emulate his dad? When I, I went to the same exact school. And I used to eat seven plates of food a night. Seven plates at dinner. Get this? I wasn't done. Then I would go to Zip's hamburger stand and get five cheeseburgers for five bucks. It's a great deal, by the way. <laughs> and I was still not full. And I didn't, I mean, I worked out twice a day. I weighed 25 pounds more than I did now. But I had what I would call a reverse eating disorder. Every time I looked in the mirror, I saw skin and bones. And I was 25 pounds heavier than I am now. But I would just look like I was going to blow away with the wind. It was embarrassing to me. So it's like, I need more weight. I need more weight. See a problem with this? And yet, no one would call it a glutton. Why? Because I wasn't gaining weight. Gluttony isn't what you look like. It's the state of your soul. You're craving something other than God. And you're going to some other pantry other than his to be satisfied. That's a glutton. You're all belly. You're all about feeding your need. 
Jesus is the only one who can fulfill it. If you turn anywhere but Jesus in any dimension of your life, you could be classified as being all belly, the glutton, the prodigal, the one who's wasting that which has been entrusted to you. Seven plates of food, five zips, cheeseburgers, and still hungry. Hiding the croissant. Some of the Ellerslie students know what this story is. This is a terrible story. Okay, all growing up, my mom always had all-you-can-eat food at the table. I, I grew up with all-you-can-eat. I never even thought that people could have a restriction on food. Okay, then I went to college, and it was all-you-can-eat. Well, then God called me to the mission field. It wasn't all-you-can-eat. It was very strange for me. It was like a whole new reality. The most challenging thing for me in missionary training school had nothing to do with the bright, hot searchlight of the Holy Spirit. It had to do with my stomach. I would, I literally came up with elaborate strategies because they had eight, like eight seats at every table and they had food for eight people at every table. So I would come in a couple minutes after, just sort of stand around, wait to see where everyone was sitting and look for a table with less than eight because there could be extra food and I was hungry. They would have a little croissant. I remember this, in this particular illustration, it'd be a croissant. Well, in a croissant, in the Ludi household growing up, you stack it with meat or chicken salad, something, and it just sort of goes out the sides, and then you use your fork at the end to eat the rest, right? This is how it works. No, no, not at missionary training school where they got all their food from the food bank, okay? They had one little strip of ham, piece of cheese, and then some packages of mayonnaise and mustard if you want to add some bulk to it. I'm looking at this thing going, this is nothing. You know, I lost 15 pounds in missionary school. 15, I didn't have 15 pounds to lose. That's what's going through Eric's head. I do not have 15 pounds to lose. I need food. Okay, so here it is. It's croissant night. Eric weighs his options in the back of the cafeteria strategically picks the table with about three or four missing people. Well, uh, what was it? So let's say about, say it's four missing people. Well, three show up. There's still one empty spot. Eric is being baited. The croissants, you know, platter's going around. I don't know how I did it, but there must have been some distraction somewhere. Either that or I said, oh, look at the wall. I don't know what it was, but I took one of the croissants, the bonus croissant, and stuck it on my lap and continued to pass the croissant platter around. Oh, this is an uncomfortable story. <laughs> Everything was fine. I was finishing up my first croissant, and I was ready to sort of bring up the second one and act like I was just starting, okay? Some guy comes in late. He's looking for a table, sees that our table's still missing a spot. They must have extra food. Sits down at the table, looking around going, hey guys, where's, where's the extra food? There should be eight. Okay, this is, everyone starts looking around going, I don't know, I don't know. This is, this is what I did, this is terrible. I, I find the croissant on my lap, okay, and I pick it up, I go, oh, here it is. All right. If you're thinking of hiding a croissant, think again. Okay, there's some bad repercussions that come with that. One of the most humiliating moments of my life. The pancakes. 
It was missionary training school. I got up for breakfast. Food mattered to me. All the other guys were sleeping. At early breakfast at missionary training school. And, you know, there's about, you know, one quarter of the entire campus that's there. Okay, so there's more access to food and options, okay? And they would stick a, uh, you know, a box of cereal on the table, and they wouldn't measure. Like, you, you could have as many bowls as you wanted. And so I took full advantage of breakfast. However, they had these days that they'd weave in of waffles and, like, pancakes. It was a pancake breakfast, which is not bad. I'm not going to say it was bad. The problem is people will get up for pancake breakfast, okay? And you're measured in how much you get, because they give a platter and then you have to share it at the table. So there's downsides to the pancake breakfast, okay? So I'm measuring all these things out, sitting at the table, and I try and sit as close to the front side of the table, which is where they serve the pancakes. The problem is we had one guy at the table who was a problem. He sat right there where they set the pancakes. Okay, we waited for about a half hour for pancakes. I'm just thinking about my stomach the whole time. Boy, do I need food. Boy, do I need food. And they bring out the food. This guy, I'm not going to say his name, he took the whole pile, stuck it on his plate. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Okay? I forgive him. I, forget, I don't know what he thinks he's doing. Because I'm hungry right now. He took the whole, I looked down, and you know how you will look around the table for those people that will identify? And everyone's like, what? I'm like, Leave it. The guy just sat there and ate it all. I'm dead serious. Okay, now here's the challenge. You want the extra challenge? They bring out another plate. Set it right in front of him. He takes the whole thing. Okay, I know. You're feeling how unjust this is. Exactly. You're identifying with Eric the belly. Why do you think God had me in that spot? So that I could get mad at some guy who was unlawfully eating all the pancakes, it was to show me what I served. I could not respond to this guy as Christ would respond. Why? Because my belly was in the way. I was so distracted over the fact that I deserved a pancake and my stomach was calling out for one and I got up at 5.30 to get pancakes this morning. You know that I had to get somewhere? I had to literally leave the table and not eat that morning. And I was struggling with my attitude. Well, I want you to measure yourself in this story, okay? Now, maybe you've never been in the situation where someone did something so audacious right in front of you. But we deal with these things all the time. When I'm teaching Hudson, I talk about the first sufferer. And I say, if we had, so there's six of us in the Ludi family. If we had food for five, who goes without? Daddy. Daddy would go without. But who has the biggest appetite? Well, probably Daddy. But daddy always must be ready to go without to serve the needs of those that are entrusted to me. We're not at all trained for this as men. We're trained to be one gigantic belly where our appetite is what is served first. You serve me first and I'll have a good attitude to serve others. That's the exact opposite of Christianity. Jesus served first. He gave up everything for us. Losing 25 pounds attempting to solve my belly. I think, it's supposed to, I think I lost 15 pounds, not 25, but that's what this is referring to. When I lost 15 pounds, attempting to solve my belly. I had no idea how to deal with the fact that, I remember reading this scripture that their belly was their God, right at this exact time. 
And I'm like, no, Jesus, you're my God. And then all I could say as I was convicted is, no, I think I have another God in my life. And I think I'm bowing down to it on a daily basis. My entire thinking and processing is based on what I'm going to eat throughout the day. It's finding more food. What a miserable way to live. It is. It was a miserable way to live. I was horrible in that season. And I was trying to solve my problems. You know what I started doing? I started fasting. It was like self-inflicted pain. But it wasn't spiritual fasting. It wasn't fasting led by God. It was fasting to discipline my stomach. If my stomach even craved anything, I'm not going to feed it. I was miserable this whole time trying to self-inflict a discipline upon, to change the focus of my life from my stomach to my God. But what did I end up doing? Focusing on my stomach all the more. You cannot save yourself from this sin. If you are engrossed in your appetite, you need Jesus to save you. You can't save yourself. Listen to Deuteronomy 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, this is actually one of the most shocking scriptures in the Bible. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, so they've disciplined him, no matter what they do, he will not listen. He is stubborn and rebellious. What should, listen to what the Bible in the Old Testament tells the father and the mother to do. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his, of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, this, is our, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. It's very interesting, but that rebellion and that stubbornness is associated in the Bible with the natural outflow of it being gluttonous and being a drunkard. Your appetite is controlling you. Truth doesn't affect you. Your appetite is the one that's leading you. Okay, so what's going to happen? And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones. Uh, wait, what? Wait a minute, this is just a poor little guy here who's rebellious. I mean, come on, every single one of us knows what that's like. Every single one of us in here knows what it's like to be a little stubborn. If you do not heed to the discipline and the instruction of the Spirit of God in your life, this is your end. God has given you the instruction now, the light now, so that you can turn. This leads to judgment. Thanks be to God, we live in the new covenant, understanding of this. But I want you to realize the seriousness has not at all diminished. Jesus died because of the seriousness of sin. Stubbornness and rebellion, gluttony and drunkenness, where you are serving your appetite instead of serving God, is serious stuff. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Doesn't that sound a lot like Ananias and Sapphira? It's very similar, which is what we talked about last week. This, all, all of Israel shall hear and fear. We need a healthy dose of the fear of God to be injected into us. We actually tremble before the realities of the seriousness of the soul. Self-entitlement. Turning down our own bedsheets instead of another's. What are we spending the best energies of our life doing? Taking care and pampering 
ourselves. And so we have bed sheets that need to be turned down and prepared so that we can slip into a soft bed at night. And so what are we doing? We're like the butler. But who are we serving? We're serving self. We're turning down the bed sheets of self. Our appetite rings the bell and says, hey, I need another root beer. I like root beer. I need another root beer. Absolutely. Anything you want, belly. Anything you want, appetite. You get what you require. Because we just want to make sure that you're happy. And this is how many of us live. Under the banner of Christianity. The roots of the damning disease of self-entitlement. It's mine. It's my throne. This is my position in this life. This is my domain. This is my kingdom. This body belongs to me. It's my body. How about the time you have in this body here on earth? It's my time. I can do with it what I want. I'll give a little to God. I'll give this many hours here, this many hours here, and the rest of it belongs to me. You see the roots of self-entitlement right there. You know that none of your money is yours, none of your time is yours, and none of your body belongs to you. Don't you understand what Christianity is? Yet we are starting from a faulty premise, and that is that God is getting 10%, and we are choosing to give it to him. And we're like, you know what? Because I love you and I appreciate what you did 2,000 years ago, I'm going to take 10% of my life and I'm going to dedicate it to you. And we're doing God a favor. And if anyone looks at us, you know, we could actually say, you know what? I'm really sacrificing a lot for God. You're not sacrificing anything. It all belongs to him. It's my throne. It's my body. It's my time. It's my money. It's my life. It's my future. Mine. This belongs to me. And here's the root problem. We call this Americanized. Our lives are ours as Christians in our mindsets. However, the Bible makes it very clear. It belongs to Jesus. There's a difference between ownership and stewardship. Ownership would be this. But you are bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You belong to him. All of you belong to him. I mean, every dimension of you belongs to him. Every, every drawer, every closet, it's actually his. You don't even have space where you can hide your junk. It's his drawer. It all belongs to him. And what he does is he puts you as steward over it, of how it is to be directed. Could you imagine a butler who's always been the king of his estate, one day realizes that he's not the rightful king, and so he... He yields himself, and he says, this estate belongs to you. Now imagine that butler, which is you and me, have spent our entire life decorating this estate, keeping the gardens, you know, buying the, uh, the furniture, and it looks really good to our tastes. And the new master comes in and says, could you sell that whole living room set? What do we do? We're thinking, I spent years of my life saving up so I could buy that living room set. See, what are we saying? We're saying, mine. I have rights here. You can't just come in, own this estate, and tell me to sell off my living room set. Could you invite in some uh, poor from the streets, some widows and orphans, and put them in the side rooms? It's going to be noisy in here. If I invite all that rabble into my house, I'm not going to get a good night's sleep. It's my place. It's my life. It's my taste. You got a dog barking now because one of these widows came with her big, you know, barking dog in the middle of the night. You're like, oh, 
mine. It's not yours. And whatever the king wants to do with that estate, he does. And you're his biggest fan in the process of him doing it. The three dangerous rationalizations of self-entitlement. It's mine by birthright. I inherited this position, and I have a claim on all the luxuries that attend it. This is one of the things I've been pondering this week, and I've pondered it in the past, but it's, it's a really interesting thought, and that is, so, depending on what class of society you were born into, some of you might have been born into an upper class, some of you middle class, some of you lower class, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what your background is, we don't even consider those things when you come here. However, we have a tendency, by our class birth, and our birthright that we inherited, to expect to maintain that position as, you know, we grow up in it, and then when we get married, we expect to live middle class if we live middle class. It's just, it's our right. Well, whoever told you that? Where did we get these notions? You might have something by birthright, but what do you do with it? You give it up. It's mine by achievement. I labored long and hard to achieve this success, and I fully expect to soak in all its benefits. If you've labored long and hard your entire life, hey, you have the right then to keep it and to enjoy its benefits, don't you? I mean, it only makes sense. However, in the kingdom of heaven, you relinquish your rights, and you say, no matter how much I put into this, it all belongs to you, and you can do with it whatever you see fit. It's mine by cunning. I have figured out the system and due to my extreme intelligence and wit have manufactured a way to steal from the rich in order to spread the wealth to um, uh, my own pocketbook. And thusly I feel that I can certainly enjoy the fruit of my cunning labors. Christianity, self-relinquishment. So we had self-entitlement, but now I want to introduce you to Christianity. Self-relinquishment. Our key word is going to look like another Greek word that we went through oh, about a year ago. But it's peristemi. It's not proistemi, which is to rule and to uh, care for well. And that's to deal with deacons, elders, uh, pastors, bishops, fathers. This is a different word. This is the word that you're going to find in Romans 6. A lot of times in Romans 6, in fact, where it's saying, yield your body, yield your members unto God. When it says, present your bodies a living sacrifice in Romans 12, that's this word. Okay, it means to present and yield unto the rightful owner, the rightful possessor. So the illustration I oftentimes use at Ellerslie is you have a warehouse, two big doors that open up to the warehouse, and there's this semi that's backing up, and the semi is full of cargo that's intended to get into your life. And, I mean, you could turn it away and say, no, we don't want your cargo. But presenting and yielding, a proistomy, is to open up the doors of your warehouse and to present your warehouse and say it's open to you, semi, and then to yield to the incoming cargo. That's the concept. To place oneself at the disposal of another, to offer up, to relinquish, to make available, to give back to the one who rightfully owns it in the first place. That's what we're called to do with our bodies. Right there. That's what we're called to do with our lives. Romans 6, you'll see this is a whole collection in Romans where this is a key word that Paul uses. Neither yields you, and that's the concept of presenting, giving, turning it over to its rightful owner, your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether, sin of, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. As you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What? says Paul. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, or they belong to God. Okay, I'm just, that isn't what my message is on. However, I want you to catch that point. The point is, your body belongs to God. Every aspect of your body belongs to God. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Okay, now think about this in, in regards to self-entitlement. Okay, this is the pattern of Jesus Christ right here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now just think about when I'm coming into that cafeteria, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of filling my stomach. What is Jesus thinking of when he comes into that cafeteria? How he can serve everyone in there. He's not caught up in his belly. He's caught up in the glory, the purpose, the love, the service unto his father. Father, what do you want? He's not thinking, oh, do you want me to eat or not eat? He's saying, I'm here at your disposal. And there's times where the Father will say, sit down and enjoy a meal and enjoy the fellowship around you. And other times they forgo the meal. I want you to go over there and sit next to that person and talk to them. Are we even available to God? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Other stomachs more important than his own. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen to this statement in 1 Corinthians 10. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Now, wealth is a strange word for us. Sounds like socialism. The, term, the concept is well-being, the benefits, the advancement of others around you. Most of us are seeking to fill our own belly. But the challenge here is seek to fill someone else's. As a priority of your existence, it's not just about satisfying your appetite. It's about being a conduit, a servant unto God's agenda in other people's lives. Upon the belly. That, that might trigger something for you. The concept of belly is a very interesting study in scripture. Upon the belly. Do you know any character in scripture that spends his life upon the belly? And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, this is after he duped Eve, the serpent, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Well, you know what, this isn't a good thing, by the way. The serpent is on his belly. I don't know what he looked like before. You know, technically when he was conning Eve, he wouldn't have been upon his belly. So I don't know what a serpent used to look like. It's a very strange thought. But we know that he's been cursed, and that's a symbol of the curse. The curse led to a belly life, and it led to dust being the food. Whatsoever goes upon the belly, this is God's prescription of what they should eat and shouldn't eat. What, thou, what goeth upon the belly 
Them you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. Okay, so if something, there's a, a, an animal that is slithering around on its belly. Guess what? God says it's an abomination. Do not eat it. It's actually a symbol of the curse. It's really interesting. And so the Hebrew culture was not allowed to eat a snake, for instance. The first man, earthy. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. Okay, now let's go back to what we just read in Genesis. Earthy. Who do we know as earthy who's eating dust? What's well, the serpent? The serpent has been literally brought to the earth, to the dust, and he's slithering around on his belly, and he's eating the dust of the earth, okay? So is the firstborn. Now, if you've hung around Ellerslie, you understand the firstborn is the flesh. It's the earthy. It's the way we are born originally, which is why we need a second birth, which is known as being born again. We must become the second born because the firstborn has inerrant problems. One of them is an eternal damnation in hell. It cannot please God. It cannot enter into engagement and fellowship with God. It is of this earth. It's not of heaven. Okay, so it says, as is the earthy, such are they, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. That's going to sound like a very strong statement at first, but we are as our father, the devil, eating dust. This is the first man. Before we're born again, why do you not understand my speech? This is Jesus speaking. Even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar, which means it's not God who is initiating for the enemy to speak. When he speaks a lie, he's speaking of his own accord. That's coming from him, because he's the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Okay, so our father, the devil, if you want to look at it this way, when we're serving our lusts and we're serving our belly, we are as our father. We are doing as our father. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And guess what we're doing? We're doing the same. Now, we might be doing it in a more socially polished manner than that would sound. However, that's what we're doing. We're serving on our belly. We are eating the dust of the earth for our satisfaction. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly cleaves unto the earth. What an interesting statement. I don't know how many of us have ever thought of ourselves slithering like a serpent. But we are under the curse. We are literally showcasing what happens to those that are at enmity with God. And guess what becomes our God? Guess what is attached to the earth? We're earthy. We have a magnetic pull to the things of this earth. We esteem the things of the earth. And get this, dust tastes good to us. We're satisfied by it. It doesn't satisfy our digestive system, but it tastes good to us. The things of this earth are pleasant to us. The things of heaven, not at all. Introducing the belly god. Those, this is in, in the uh, brackets, what this is is the context. It's talking about those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. 
For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Okay, they're given a false light. Those that live upon their belly are giving the false light and literally deluding and deceiving those around them. Okay, again, in brackets, the context is it's talking about enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now I had to skip over a lot of stuff here, but one of the things you'll notice is that the belly and sexual appetite are oftentimes linked you see that right there? It's talking about meats for the belly, and then it starts talking about fornication. Now, I want you to realize this is not accidental. That which is given to the dust is that which is in that region of the body. Okay? It's the appetite. Upon the belly, four things that mark those enslaved to the dust of this earth. Eating dust, we are strangely satisfied with worldly rot. It's amazing. That literally is killing us. This junk that the world is serving us does not satisfy truly, but it has a glimmer of satisfaction to it. It will give us pleasure for the moment. And we eat it. We actually imbibe it. We take it in, even though it's destroying our soul as we're doing it. We mind earthly things. What's our mind on? Well, it's on our belly. It's on our appetite. What are we thinking about? We're thinking about things of this earth. We're not thinking about things that are heavenly. Making their appetite their God. Uh-huh. That's what Eric did. I was a Christian. And yet my life centered around my stomach instead of my God. And serving their sexual craving. Okay, isn't it fascinating that those would all be woven together? That's what happens when you're upon your belly. The significance of the belly. Belly is just an uncomfortable word. Let's just admit it. Belly. Okay? When you hear the word belly, you always figure there's a little jiggle in it. Okay? If you have a flat stomach, you don't call it a belly. You call it a stomach. Okay? I mean, because it's a belly if it's like blub blub. All right? So the significance of the belly, that's not what it's talking about in Scripture. When it's talking about it in Scripture, it's not necessarily just talking about some, you know, blub blub belly. It's talking about the innermost place. It's talking about the center of a man. The place of appetite. There is a reason why the enemy has moved into this corridor and corrupted it. Because it is a critical center of the human life. And if it's not set free and cleaned and polished up and filled with Jesus Christ himself, it literally will be our undoing as the church. That's another very uncomfortable word. Seems like everything to do with the concept of glutton, belly, gaster. I mean, there's just something ugly about that. I'm very sensitive to words, okay, just so you know. My mom used to always be like, Eric, boy, it's just a word. Yeah, but it's an ugly word, okay? Gaster? Uh, Gaster, actually, is, uh, that sounded uh, like a foreign language there, but uh, Gaster, I don't remember exactly how to pronounce this one. This is what it means. Listen closely, this is extremely fascinating. The belly, the womb, the stomach, the gormandizer. It's literally one who is all stomach, it's the concept, but it... It doesn't just mean stomach or belly. It means womb. And so this word is interchanged in the Greek to describe two very distinct things. One who's corrupted in his belly, whose belly is his God, and he is a glutton. He's all about himself and his own entitlements. 
to a completely opposite description of one whose womb is given over to Almighty God, and there's a supernatural immaculate conception in it, and in that womb, or in that gaster, is the formation of Jesus Christ, and out of that womb comes forth the fruit of God himself. Two very distinct things happen in the same dimension of the human body. The place of self-entitlement. So this belly, or this womb, is one of two things. The first place is either the place of self-entitlement. When you have self-entitlement, it's right here. This is your kingdom center, okay? And thusly, death and decay are the results. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, or lazy gluttons. That's our word for gaster. That's, that's where the word's used. It means like a slow belly, a lazy glutton. Someone who's literally sitting there burping and scratching. Okay? They, are, they have not taken the center of their life and yielded it to the living God. Instead, they've made their belly their center, their God. And as a result, their life is death and decay. Okay, let's look at the other option. The place of self-relinquishment. And thusly, the life of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing statement in Luke. And Mary said, okay, remember, the angel, Gabriel, has come to Mary and has basically said, God wants your womb. God is asking for your body. That he would form the Messiah inside of you. Okay, now I want you to realize what the gospel is. It's that. God wants your body. God wants to have your womb. He wants to have that innermost part of your existence so that he could form the Messiah in you. And that out of you will come forth the fruit of the Spirit. That's the gospel. He's after the center. He's after the inner belly. He's after the womb. Whichever way this womb goes defines what comes out of your life. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. She accepted the invitation. And what formed in her? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. The concept is not just a child, but a womb. It's the same word. It's actually the same Greek word of gaster, right there. But it has to do with being with child. So it's a womb that is functioning as it ought to function, as opposed to the belly being the glutton, over here the cretin, or to actually be the Mary. We are all called to be the virgin in which Jesus Christ is born afresh in this generation. This is the word we looked at before, okay? This is that word which means present and yield. But I, want, I held back one of the definitions of it so I could bring it out right now. Look at the very end where I made it a little bigger. It says, to set at hand, to be the bride, the handmaid, the bondservant, the priest. See, the hands, the right hand of God is the hand of strength, authority. It's the hand of marriage. So a bride will stand at the right hand of the groom. And so she, he is taking his strength, his position, his power, and he is lending it as protection, as strength, as enabling power to his wife, okay? But you have various things in the Hebrew culture that stand at the hand, or to set at hand. To be the bride, the handmaid, which is the maid that comes and says, is there anything I can do for you, sir? Anything. She comes and attends in his hand, okay? And wherever his hand points, that's where she will go. 
The bondservant is one that is at hand, okay? He literally has an ear pierced. Whatever the master asks, he has an ear to hear it. Yes, yes, master. Yes, I will do it. He is at hand. He's at his beck and call, okay? And then we have the priest who was smeared on his ear, his thumb, and his right toe to literally stand at the beck and call of God Almighty. Whatever God wanted to do in that land, they would do it. Whatever, they, whatever God commissioned them to do, they would enact it, okay? To be set at hand. Now look at what Mary says. And Mary said, behold the handmaid. It's the very same concept. Behold the one who's presented and yielded. The one who is at your beck and call, whatever you desire, be it unto me according to thy word. The innermost place, the belly of the womb, either the place of self-appetite or the home of Jesus Christ. He that believes on me, this is Jesus speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You believe in Jesus Christ, and what does he go after? The belly. And he fills the belly with himself. This is the exact opposite of gluttony. The exact opposite of self-entitlement. It's a giving up of that which God has purchased. And if we believe on him, he will take our center. He will take our innermost place and out of it will flow rivers of living water, life-giving substance. We will change the world. We will give instead of take. All right, now this is going to seem a little strange. I've been talking about the belly. Now I'm going to add a strange addition to it, the thigh. I know. And this is an awkward message to start with just because of the area of the body we're, we're dealing with. Now, God doesn't seem to blush when he's dealing with these things. However, Eric has a little difficult of a time knowing how to articulate certain things here. Okay, but the thigh. Okay, so if you use your imagination, we start doing bellies and thighs, you begin to realize we're talking about an area of the human body. And that area is the downfall of the entire church in America today. It's because that area of the body has not been consecrated, has not been filled with the life of God Almighty. And that area of the body is ruling the church instead of Jesus ruling the church. Okay, is that said clear enough where I don't need to go into any more detail? Okay, the symbol of self-strength. So thigh is a symbol of self-strength. I have something to give. Genesis 32. Now listen to this closely. Now this is, I'm taking certain scriptures out of this. This is where Jacob is left alone at Peniel, and he wrestles with the man of God at night. And he's wrestling through the night. Now listen closely. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. So God seems to touch the hollow of Jacob's thigh. This seems like a strange thing to do. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. He has a limp. His, his leg, literally, he can't walk as he once did. Therefore the children of Israel eat not the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that, that shrank. I know it's strange, okay? I mean, all this is like, what is a thigh? Well, let me tell you what part is the hollow of the thigh. It's, 
the word huckle is a very awkward word for every word in this message is awkward okay the huckle bone okay that's just a, it's like let's not talk about that the huckle bone the groin okay extra uncomfortable the hollow space where the thigh bone moves the sexual region of a man his potency and his strength jacob was touched at his point of strength the literally the 12 sons of israel come out of that zone and god touches him and says mine this belongs to me you cannot be strong on your own. This belongs to me. So now I've discussed two different things, the belly and the thigh. The belly and the thigh, the symbol of sexual appetite, rebellion, and gluttony. The brass kingdom. From now on, instead of me having to talk about bellies and thighs and zones, which some of you are like very uncomfortable, I'm watching Sandy wince the whole message uh, long so far. Uh, Instead of calling it that, we're just going to call it the Brass Kingdom, okay? And I'll show you why. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he dreams of this image of a man, okay? This tall, monumental image. And he asks his wise men to give him the, the, the dream and to interpret it. None of them can do it. So Daniel is called in. And Daniel, literally without ever hearing what the dream was, receives revelation from God what his dream was and the interpretation. It's an incredible moment in Scripture. Thou, O king, says Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, saw and, and behold a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part, part of iron and part of clay. Now, let's stop there for a second. This is talking about kingdoms of the earth. So I'm not going to try and confuse you to make it sound like it's just talking about a man. However, it is. It's the image of a man. It's the image of man's strength. It's the image of that which will rule. Okay? And so what we have is we have a division of, of kingdoms. And there's a kingdom of, of brass, which is in the belly and the thigh. That's why I'm going to say, let's just call it the kingdom of brass from this point forward. Okay? The kingdom of brass, which is ruled in the church of Jesus Christ in America today as opposed to a greater kingdom that must rule. Watch what happens in this story. Thou saw till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Jesus. The one who brought the true kingdom. The one who is the demonstration of the perfect man. The great mountainous man himself, Jesus Christ. To take the false empire. The empire that literally is made of that which is of this earth. And to strike it down with a stone that was even carved in the stuff of earth. But it's of heaven. And it will decimate this image of strength in this earth. And it will grow up unto a great picture of what God can do. If you have a brass kingdom that needs to be destroyed, I know just the place to turn. His name is Jesus. The rotting thigh and bloating belly. You're like saying, well, aren't we going to start using the term brass kingdom for this, Eric? Well, this is a story. I can't help it. Numbers 5. Now, this is a very complicated story. 
it's actually not a story. It's actually a, something that God tells his people to do. If a man feels that his wife has committed an adulterous, has an adulterous relationship, okay? It's a very uncomfortable topic, I know. That man, to test the integrity of his wife, must do this. He must bring, him, bring her before the priest. Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing. And the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord does make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. This is in the Bible, by the way. You guys are going to think, like, what is Eric's found the most bizarre scriptures this week. (laughs) I didn't come up with this. You know that God created the human body as a testimony of truth? He built it this way. I didn't. I'm just trying to translate it. If this woman is false and if she has behaved in an adulterous manner towards her husband, she has broken covenant. And to prove that she is actually false and lying, her thigh will rot and her belly will bloat. Okay? In the very, in the very aspect of the body that we're talking about will demonstrate And and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And when he has made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she be defiled and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thigh shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among her people. So what did she do? She followed her appetite. She allowed, like a serpent, to literally have the brass kingdom dimension of her existence be the the central dimension of her life, and she served its appetite. And now, as a result, she is judged in the same manner. The curse and the correction. The curse. Life lived upon the belly in the service of the belly god. A slave to sexual appetite, a hip swagger on the strong thigh. Our thigh's fine. We have strength, and as a result, we strut. You know that when your thigh is touched, you can't strut? You limp. You see, the correction of the brass kingdom dimension of our life is very interesting. It's an emptied belly ready to be filled, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, a servant to righteousness, a thigh touched with a limp of utter dependency. No longer do we have confidence in ourselves. We're willing to limp. We might not look that good. We might not be that attractive to this world. Maybe I should say it this way. We aren't going to be attractive to this world when our thigh is touched. But we are no longer about us and our own appetite. Ehud, the man of consecrated thigh. This is a very fascinating uh, story. And I want you, in the context of what we're discussing, to ponder it. Okay? We have Ehud, who has a long dagger on his thigh, on his right thigh. And he is going in to bring judgment against that which is ruling It's the king of Moab who's ruling over Israel, God's people and God's possession. We could say it this way, God's property. God's property has come under the rulership of the king of Moab. Just like the church of Jesus Christ has come under the rulership of the belly god, the belly king. Where's Ehud when we need him? Well, by the way, Jesus is the fulfillment of this picture of the judge. 
And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So when you were ruled by another nation, what you would do is you would present tribute unto that king so that he would stay his forces and not destroy you. And so you pay tributes like a tax. And so Ehud has come to pay the tribute unto the king. So he's representative of the kingdom of Israel in this scene. Now Ehud made himself, no, I already read that. Let's see. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. I didn't put that in there. Okay, that's just in there. Okay, he's a very fat man. Isn't it fascinating that God adds that? He's a very fat man whose God was his belly. Okay, so what we have is we have the belly God literally ruling over Israel in this scene. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I love this line. I have a message from God for you. Isn't that great? This is from God himself to the belly God. So, by the way, let me see if I can recast uh, this to your belly God. I have a message from God for you. You see, if you have an Eglon sitting in your brass kingdom, ruling over your body, it's time for Ehud to arrive. I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. And I'll stop there. That, I was reading something to Hudson the other day, and it was sort of like, do I skip over this part? I mean, there was something that we were reading. It was like, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, God doesn't seem to blush when he describes what is taking place. However, you need to realize that all that is in your belly must come out. That darkness, that deceit, that appetite of self must be removed. And it's the strong dagger of Jesus Christ. He has wielded it upon the cross and he has done everything that is needed to remove Eglon from the throne. When we talk about the flesh in here, Eglon should be our new picture for it. Because that's exactly what it is. It's appetite. It's self-serving appetite. That's what the flesh is. And I want you to know, the flesh has been defeated. The belly made right, as it ought to be. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. Why? Because dust will never satisfy what the wicked desire is dust. It's things of this earth, and it will never satisfy. But when you desire the righteous, desire things of the heavenly realm. And guess what? They eat to the satisfying of their soul. The blueness of a wound cleanses away evil. So do stripes the inward parts of the belly. This is an incredible statement here. 
You want to know how your belly is cleansed? How your belly is purged? Stripes are the ones that do it. Jesus received the stripes that were necessary to cleanse the innermost part of your belly. It's an amazing statement. What Jesus Christ did was he came to rule over your life. But to accomplish that, he had to suffer and die. And when he suffered and died, he accomplished something on that cross. And it says in Romans 6 that our old man, our old Eglon, the man who is very fat, was crucified with him on that tree. In other words, it wasn't just Jesus that died. Jesus was dying to bring judgment upon sin, upon death, upon the flesh, upon your old man, your old disposition, your old behavior, your old way of living, your belly God. The church today is being ruled by the belly God, by the brass kingdom, Eglon. And I want you to know, we serve one king and one king only, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you have any dimension of your life, which is you, your rights, your appetite, I want you to allow Jesus to come in and clean house. No rationalizations. Ananias and Sapphira had a rationalization for doing what they did. But I want you to realize, here in the church of Jesus Christ, we're going to invite the bright, hot searchlight of Jesus Christ in to turn over every stone, to scour and look in every closet, to pull open every drawer. Wherever we're still standing going, mine, this belongs to me, I want God to get it. Let's be Christians. Let's be Christians as God intended us to be for the glory of King Jesus. This body belongs to him. He purchased it on the cross. He deserves that which he died for. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? Let's pray. Father, we consecrate these bodies to you. Heads down to toes. And Lord Jesus, we specifically make mention of the brass kingdom today. That place of appetite. Lord, many of us have been driven for far too long and rationalized why it's okay. Why it's acceptable in the church of Jesus Christ to serve yourself at the same time declare that you serve Jesus. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make correction to that and that you would not allow us to escape the bright, hot searchlight. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and bring conviction where conviction is necessary. Come and purge us where we must be purged. But don't just leave us empty. I ask that you would come and fill us. And just as you conceive the the very life of Jesus in Mary, I pray that you would conceive the life of Jesus within us. That you would grow up that life unto full maturity and that out of us would come forth the fruits of righteousness. Lord Jesus, we love you. We have great expectations of what you will do with these yielded vessels. Amen. 
This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. To take this specific message deeper through our daily Thunder discussions, visit ellerslie.com, where you can also explore our sermon library or learn more about joining us in person at the Church at Ellerslie here in Windsor, Colorado. Thanks for listening.